0: Nightjay surveyed the scene very carefully from a ridge, a pair of binoculars pressed against his face. I don't know how long he stood there, but it must have seemed like ages as he waited for anything, any sign, that all was not as it should be. After that eternity, he started forward again, making his way down into a secluded canyon floor. He would never make it there. We are not exactly sure why. But he suddenly threw up the alarm, and he and the warriors with him would disappear into the rocks, leaving all their possessions not physically on their bodies behind. And of course he didn't know it at the time, but it's a situation that would repeat itself just a mere two months later. This time he wasn't coming down, he was already at the bottom. He was safe and content, enjoying a temporary camp as his people milled about around him, cooking, cleaning, eating, talking... All those things a group of people do. Then the call came out again. Once more, Nietzsche had to flee, and once more he left everything behind. It must have stung. It must have been humiliating. It must have sent ripples throughout all the renegades. But more than being all those things, and something Nietzsche did not fully realize, it signaled the beginning of the end. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. Episode 111, Discouragement. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we fully introduced General Nelson A. Miles, who was given the responsibility of finally bringing Geronimo to heel. His plan, which was highly influenced by his superiors, was to aggressively pursue the Apache with regular soldiers while also setting up a system of observation posts along the border. And while his strike force, under the command of Captain Henry Lawton, was able to give the Chiricahua a run for their money... It wasn't that helpful when in May 1886, Naiche decided he wanted to lead some men to Fort Apache. By May 25th, Naiche was able to make it into the White Mountains, camping east of the junction of the Little and Big Bonito Creeks. His group found a secluded little spot in a canyon where they stashed their saddles and gear, and then Naiche and the men with him proceeded on foot toward the nearest Chiricahua settlement, which was seven miles away. And while that might seem like a long distance to you and I, for an Apache, that's basically just a stroll down the block. However, they were soon to be disappointed on multiple fronts. Their families had long been taken away from Fort Apache, just in case something like this had actually happened. However, Naichi was able to find his mother, Dostese, the wife of the deceased Cochise, and it's possible that from her he learned all the bad news at once. His family wasn't there. Crook was now gone. This new guy, Miles, was in charge, and that the scouts were in fact not hunting him at all. After gathering all this intelligence, Neiche and his men slipped away once again. Except their visit had not gone unnoticed. Word got to the fort's commander that Neiche had been in the area, which meant that Miles now knew all about it too. The general instantly sent orders to capture these renegades if possible, and suggested sending out some elderly Chiricahua to try and talk to them into coming in on their own accord, which may have been what Naiche had wanted to do in the first place. However, the fort's commander found it difficult to find anyone among the settled Chiricahua who actually wanted to participate. He was told straight out that the Chiricahua on the reservation considered Geronimo, Naiche, and the rest... They're enemies, and if they went to talk with them, there was the possibility that they would be killed or, worse, be forced at rifle point to go with the hostiles. And I want you to remember that fact, especially in a couple months when Miles is talking his nonsense about how all the Reservation Apache are just fifth columnists that can't be trusted. Finally, Dostese and another woman were persuaded to go out and make contact with Nightshade. However, they were only told to extend vague promises about the renegades being treated justly if they were to surrender themselves. So, not the sort of agreements that dream treaties are made of. Meanwhile, a cavalry captain and his men just happened to stumble upon the secluded spot where Nightshade and his company had ditched all their supplies. And this captain proved to be just slightly smarter than the average bear as he ordered his men not to disturb the Apache's possessions, and then to systematically erase any sign of their presence in the area. This was a golden opportunity. He and his men were going to lie in wait, and when the Apache returned to claim their stuff, they were going to spring up and capture them all. And they almost pulled it off. They waited all night and into the early hours of the morning, And just when the men's patience was wearing thin to the point of telling their captain that it wasn't going to work, Naiche showed up. And this is what we talked about in the intro to today's episode, where he's studying the scene with a pair of binoculars intently before leading his men on the trail down into where they had left their supplies. Unfortunately for the cavalry, the Apache had only gotten halfway down when Naiche suddenly yelled out a warning cry. We'll never know for certain what tipped him off, but it's possible there was an errant boot print or other random clue that the soldiers had missed when laying their trap. Newspaper accounts at that time ran the story that a buffalo soldier had raised his head just a little too high to get a peek at the Apache, but that sounds like just another way to blame the black officers. Whatever happened, the cavalry gave one ineffective volley from their rifles before mounting their horses. But by the time they got to the higher ground naiche and his men were long gone now i mentioned this incident because a couple days later on may 29th 1886 Dose tesse and the other woman returned to fort apache saying they had not been able to meet with her son due to him being spooked by the soldiers that had found this hiding spot in reality some sort of meeting had actually taken place as upon further questioning some months later, Dostese would admit that, yeah, she had seen and spoken with Nietzsche. However, it apparently had not been a happy reunion for the mother and son, as she disparagingly described him as, quote, an ungrateful son who would have nothing to do with her, end quote. Though Dostese's original report was that Nietzsche could not be found, She, the Fort Apache commander, and Miles all thought that he might still just be around the area, looking for a possible way to surrender. So Miles sent another telegram, ordering that the emissaries be sent out a second time, but with better terms than the vague promises from before. The fort's commander must have shaken his head because his reply basically boiled down to, well, that would have been good to have the first time around. The two women were sent out again with this new offer, but this time they legitimately could not find Naiche. Knowing that his original plan had been busted by these change in circumstances, Naiche and his group had turned around and headed back toward Mexico to link up with Geronimo. However, it would not be a stealthy or bloodless ride. As I mentioned last episode, Naiche and his group killed 13 people during the 18 days they were in Arizona. The best thing to come out of this mission is I get to report one of the few times that Miles' observation stations with their heliographs actually proved effective. Because as Nietzsche and his men were in the Patagonia Mountains, the band was spotted and cavalry and scouts were put on their trail. The Apache and the cavalry spotted each other near the Maori mine, and that takes us back a little bit, doesn't it? But the Apache were once again able to slip away though they did lose some supplies and animals in the process. By June 7th, Nietzsche and the rest had reached the safety of Mexico. This is where they would stay for literally the rest of the campaign, so yeah, the heliograph stations were not able to contribute that much to the Apache Wars. But hey, thank you for providing this one little footnote in history. Okay, so if you are Miles... And all of this just happened, what do you do? The answer is, lie to your superiors about this latest incursion. Okay, maybe lie is a little strong of a word, but Miles certainly decided to improve the truth just a bit. On May 30th, he wrote to his superiors that operations that month had been, in the whole, satisfactory, and that his men had done all that they were expected to do. He did happily report that his forces were good enough to keep all the Chiricahua on the reservation and that the hostiles' numbers had been reduced. Which is fine and dandy until you remember that the Chiricahua on the reservation were never going to leave it anyway and that Miles was basing his report about the hostiles' numbers on unverified rumors coming up from Mexico. But the brave peacock was never one to quibble over a little white lie to his superiors. He also sent along news that his forces were not enough to adequately control the 40,000 Indians he now oversaw in his department, which included both Arizona and New Mexico. General Philip Sheridan in Washington, however, was kind of used to Miles by now and responded that this report was calculated to mislead, mainly because Miles may be overseeing 40,000 Indians across the reservation, but he was in reality only fighting 40, less than half of which were actual fighting men. After Sheridan rejected his appeals for more men, Miles did something he knew would probably tick him off. He tried diplomacy again. However, this time Dostese could not be persuaded to ride out to talk with her ungrateful offspring. So Miles actually turned to none other than Tom Jeffords, the friend of Cochise and the former Indian agent over the now-defunct Chiricahua Reservation. This will not be the last time that Jefford's name is invoked, but unfortunately he couldn't get on scene quick enough before Naiche and his group made it back to Mexico. So that meant diplomacy was out, and aggressive campaigning was back on the table. Enter Captain Henry Lawton and his strike force. To be fair, this strike force had actually been running around all throughout May of 1886. With Geronimo and Nietzsche striking into southern Arizona at the beginning of the month, they had been running around, chasing rumors, and generally patrolling for the enemy. They managed to log around 500 miles in May alone, which, you know, is no laughing matter. But now that the enemy had gone south of the border again, it was time to get fresh troops and scouts, and then strike down into Mexico. Lawton reported, quote, we can yet come up with the hostiles and meet them successfully, but I must have good strong men who believe in possibility of success, and officers willing to sustain a few hardships and set cheerful examples. End quote. The end to that statement proves to be more than a bit ironic because at the end of a couple months of harsh campaigning in Mexico, Lawton was through with hardships and was becoming doubtful of success. On june seventh, Brimming with both confidence and vigor, Lawton left Nogales to start his grand chase into Mexico by linking up with troops already following Niche's trail. Assistant surgeon Leonard Wood and a pack train would follow five days later and would catch up with Lawton and the rest of the men, who had already found one abandoned camp in the Azul Mountains. On June 11th, eleven days after Lawton left Arizona, they unexpectedly ran into a group of Mexicans who had something very interesting to report. They had just faced Geronimo the day before. So, let me rewind a bit to say that Geronimo had actually been fairly quiet for most of May after Niche had split off on his side mission. His captive, Trinidad Verdon, said that toward the end of the month, some Mexicans found Geronimo's trail but they already moved to be in the Azu Mountains to meet with a returning Nanche. Once all the hostiles were in one place again, they realized that more than a few people were going to be hot on their heels, so they made like a gang of thieves after a bank heist. They broke up, went their separate ways, and tried to lay low. Specifically, they broke into three smaller groups, with Geronimo leading a gang of only six toward the junction of the Arroz and Yaqui Rivers, and that's when they had their run-in with the Mexicans. These Mexicans were vaqueros, or cowboys, who had found some butchered livestock, and they naturally assumed that meant a handful of Apache were around. So about 30 men gathered together to follow the trail and meet out some good old-fashioned frontier justice. On June 17th, they ran right into where Geronimo and his small band had chosen to camp. The Apache spied the Mexicans first, and Geronimo gave the order to flee and leave everything behind. He jumped on a horse and had his captive, Verdon, jump on behind him as the Mexican soldiers advanced, firing at the Apache who were retreating into a box canyon. And it's during this volley that Geronimo watched as one of his wives was seriously wounded. She was so wounded, in fact, that she decided to go full blaze of glory, jumping off her horse and emptying her revolver until she was completely cut down by Mexican bullets. After watching this, Geronimo tried to escape, but his horse was wounded, and it threw both him and verdon Quickly getting up, he yelled for Verdun to follow him and made for whatever rocks could provide him cover, Verdin, however, decided that she would rather take her chances with the Mexicans and ran toward them instead of the Apache that had literally killed her entire family and then taken her hostage. A decision, I'm sure you'll agree, that made a lot of sense. After seizing the hostile camp, the Mexicans tried to advance on Geronimo's position, but he and his men were too well hidden. Geronimo actually managed to pick off three of the Mexicans and wound a fourth, He had, in fact, shown superior marksmanship skills, shooting each of the three dead through the head. By nightfall, the Mexican leader called off the attack, and they retreated. Then the next day, this group ran into Lawton and his men, who they thought might have been a second wave of hostiles because of the Apache scouts the captain had with him. Lawton actually had a difficult time convincing them otherwise, but once he finally did, they agreed to show him the scene of the attack. They found the three dead Mexicans and Geronimo's wife, who had been scalped for the bounty that the state of Sonora would surely pay for it. Lawton also had the chance to gain valuable intelligence from Verdin. However, for the moment, he fell back to a nearby ranch with the Mexicans to wait for some reinforcements before pursuing again. Lawton was sure that the three separate groups the Apache had broken into would regroup in the Sierra Madres to make a permanent camp. After that, it was only a matter of finding where exactly they would make said camp. Lawton must have thought the end was in sight, and would write that this was a good chance to enhance his reputation and to build a lot of credit with Miles. He at this point was still optimistic and full of energy, ready to hunt the Apache down to the very ends of the earth but we'll just give him a couple more months and see how he's doing then. Geronimo couldn't have been too happy about his position at that moment. His camp had been taken, he had lost his captive, he had lost a horse, and he had lost a wife. If there was one thing Geronimo had an abundance of, it was wives. The general count is a total of nine, but by now I've lost count of how many have been killed or captured. Some had been taken by crook, others by Mexicans. And I have to think that, as willing to live the life of a renegade as he was, to have a spouse fall in battle like that must have hurt him deeply. But there was nothing to do now but carry on and wait to link up with Nietzsche and the other hostiles again. Just a few days after Geronimo's encounter with the Mexicans, Lawton would write to his wife that he was just waiting for some fresh troops and new supplies and then he would go and hit the trail again. At this point, he still had a lot of the pluck and energy that he began the campaign with, as he told Mrs. Lawton, quote, "'Somebody must do something, and I am going to try and do it,' end quote. But after sending some subordinates to check on raids that Nietzsche had done, Lawton had to sit on his hands and wait. It was this waiting that really chipped away at his gung-ho attitude. Because this was not some fun camping trip, it was an 1880s army expedition. Lawton and his men were dealing with bad food and a continual plague of insects. Plus, we can't forget that he's in the Sonoran Desert. In June. 120 degree days was something they dealt with regularly. His men from Fort Huachuca, specifically chosen to be the best when dealing with these conditions started to conclude that they had experienced too much of those conditions. Assistant Surgeon Wood also reported that, suspiciously, no officers were available to come and command the infantrymen. The infantry sergeant, Wood said, had been, quote, brought into camp with his hands tied behind him and his gun lashed across his back, end quote. So all of this managed to weigh on the once indefatigable Lawton, he confessed privately that he detested Sonora, calling it, quote, a God-forsaken country with God-forsaken people living in it, end quote, and remarking, quote, the Indians are better than the Mexicans, end quote. Wood's arrival in the first days of July gave everyone a much-needed shot in the arm, as he both tended to the sick and agreed to lead the demoralized infantry. Remember that the chance to switch over to command was why he had signed on in the first place. Everyone was shaken out of their torpor when news arrived that the Apache had struck 25 miles to the southeast. Over the next several days, other reports would come in about where the Apache had struck and really Lant and his men were having a bit of difficulty following the trail. Half of the problem was that it was already monsoon season in the desert, and if you'll recall from an eternity ago in episode 3, that meant heavy rains washing away any signs of their prey. The other half of the problem was that, while the western Apache scouts Lawton had could follow trails easily enough, they were unfamiliar with the country. If the army had allowed any of the Chiricahua, they most likely would have been able to make educated guesses on where the trail would lead next, even if the rain had gotten rid of any tracks. Lawton kind of lucked out here, as Mexican officials offered two men who were familiar with the area an offer that Lawton wisely accepted in a heartbeat. Pushing southward toward the Yaqui River, Lawton would write that they were now penetrating, quote, the worst mountains imaginable with the roughest kinds of canyons, end quote. The heat also remained a problem with many of the men reduced to marching in their drawers and undershirts. Lawton would again confess privately that, quote, everything seems to be going wrong, end quote. He also felt that he had been sent to the edge of the world with very little supplies, despite the assurances of his commanding officers. Still, he did find enough gumption to write, quote, I have one good quality. I do not get discouraged and will never give up. End quote. I have no problem believing the last part of that sentence, but dude, look at your journal. You are already discouraged. Still, news was coming his way to lift up even his sagging spirits. On July 13th, 1886, two scouts, covered in sweat, ran into Lawton's camp with news. They had found the Chiricahua. Geronimo and his people had positioned themselves on a low saddle between two buttes overlooking the Yaqui River, about six miles south of its junction with the Arros. And not only was Geronimo there, but Naiche and the people with him as well. Lawton had, in fact, called it. All the hostiles that had split into three groups had finally come together again. Lawton, Wood, and the infantry instantly followed the two scouts the eight miles to where the Chiricahua could be found. They moved so fast, in fact, that they actually had to leave 20 men behind because they had fallen out with exhaustion. Positioning themselves on a high ridge, they could easily look down into the Chiricahua camp with fires burning, people moving to and from, and ponies tied up nicely. This was it, a chance to catch the Chiricahua unawares and come crashing down to end the whole prolonged conflict. The plan was a classic pincer movement, with a subordinate to come in from upstream and push the retreating hostiles into Lawton, who would be waiting downstream. I would like to stop a moment right here and reflect on the fact that we've been in this situation before. Army ready to strike. Apache none the wiser. Now ask yourself, how does this always go? That's right, it always finds some way to get botched. Sometimes, okay several times, it's Mule's brain that gives everything away. Sometimes it's the men themselves, sometimes it's just bad luck. But for the life of me, I cannot recollect one time where one of these sneak attacks has been successful. And guess what? This one won't be successful either. Lawton and his men were just getting into position, ready to take the rancheria when they heard gunfire from the other group. Instantly knowing the element of surprise was lost, Lawton and his men rushed the encampment, only to find that it was now completely deserted. The other arm of the pincer movement had fired at nothing, which gave enough warning to Geronimo that he could lead his people out through a trail that cut between the river and some steep cliffs. And we have to give Geronimo some credit here, as he was amazingly talented at extracting his people from the jaws of defeat, being able to handle massive retreats without it turning into total chaos. It's true that they couldn't grab any of their belongings, but they still had managed to escape with their lives. Wood would find out later that this instance turned out to be another example of bad luck on the army's part. A Chiricahua warrior just so happened to be out hunting and discovered the army's trail. He had run back quickly and warned the whole village, leading to Geronimo's strategic retreat. Lawton, the man who said he would never be discouraged, would write that he was, quote, "...so disappointed as to be sick, for here was the chance we'd been looking for so long." and it slipped from me without being able to do anything to prevent it." I hear you, man. I hear ya. The only consolation is that they had, indeed, taken everything Geronimo had. I'm talking camp equipment, provisions, and horses and mules, everything. Once again, the Apache would have to start from scratch. Still, Lawton's forces were in no shape to follow up this pseudo-victory. Over the next few days, they would rest and enjoy the spoils from this latest attack. This wasn't laziness or indifference, it was common sense. Lawton's forces were exhausted, and he had just force-marched them to get to the Chiricahua camp. They needed to rest. The heat was still horrendous, to the point that Lawton considered suspending operations for all of July and August. He and his men would continue to fight illness, and the captain would eventually be on the point of dying out in the desert. Wood, the surgeon, was already languishing with a tarantula bite, of all things, a wound that he had to repeatedly lance in order to get it to heal. Though in coming weeks, Lawton and his men moved around the Arros River region. They, in fact, made very little progress in finding Geronimo or any other Apache. But, as demoralized as he was, Lawton had good company from the opposing side. Nietzsche would later recall that the sudden appearance of the army and his narrow escape left him so discouraged that he felt like throwing in the towel right then and there. And though we don't have their thoughts written down, I'm willing to bet that a few of his fellow Chiricahua were feeling the exact same way. The war wasn't exactly going as either side would have wanted. On July 31st, Lawton would write to his wife saying that he was planning on continuing the campaign until quote, Geronimo is killed. Or surrenders. End quote. Which is where I actually want to leave off for this week. Because within a month, things would change completely for both sides, as the idea of Geronimo surrendering was suddenly very much on the table. While Lawton was doing his best to put on a brave face in Mexico, General Miles was working things up in Arizona. And ultimately, one of his decisions would take a page out of Crook's manual that would become the catalyst for bringing Geronimo in. Unfortunately, another decision would be the catalyst for all the Chiricahua spending the next three decades as prisoners of war. But before we go this week, I wanted to take a moment to discuss things behind the scenes here on the podcast— Many of you probably saw the post I made on the podcast social media channels this past week, but in case you didn't or want a reminder, I'm going to mention it here. After more than two years of doing this, I finally got off my duff about something and got the donate button working on the podcast website. And I'll give special shoutouts here to both my wife and listener Mike C. for really stirring me out of my torpor to get that button finally functional. Now, I'm not looking for a handout here. I honestly just enjoy history and getting to lay it out for you every week. And I'll keep doing that no matter if none of you give me so much as a penny. However, if you feel you've gotten anything out of the past 111 episodes and further feel that I deserve something and maybe you found a buck or two under the couch cushions, well, who am I to say no? Also, I want to give out a truly humble thank you for the donations I've received so far. I'm simply blown away by your generosity. So, if you are moved upon to donate, please visit azhistorypodcast.com and look for the donation button in the upper right-hand corner. It is so appreciated. And until next time, I'm your host, David Rookhausen. And you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.